when Dominic and I and Kelly were putting together our, uh, uh, the various themes of, the, um, of this symposium, <clears throat> we could have spent all day discussing uh, the next theme, which is data and privacy and the ethics of storytelling and open data and internet and who owns what and who are we and how can we manipulate ourselves and other people. But we boiled it down to two uh, fascinating and, and completely diverse and different, um, different uh, speakers. And uh, we start off this morning with uh, Emer Coleman. And uh, Emer, uh, I'll just get my glasses here. Uh, Emer has just been recently uh, appointed uh, by the Irish government um, to, uh, where is it here? Yeah, so basically she's chair of the Open Data Governance Board, which will advise the Irish government on its national open data strategy. Emer is former director of digital projects for the Mayor of London uh, under uh, Boris Johnson, where she established the London Data Store, facilitating the creation of hundreds of products and applications built on open public data. Uh, she's also former director uh, of the Digital Engagement for Government uh, uh, under, uh, under the Cabinet Office, where she authored the Social Media Guidance for Government. Uh, she was named in Wired Magazine's Top 100 Digital Power Influencers in 2011, and uh, she is uh, also the only non-US contributor to Beyond Transparency, uh, Open Data and the Future Civic Innovation Code for America. So I'd like to welcome uh, Emer Coleman, who will give us a presentation, and then we'll, we'll, we'll have a discussion with her afterwards. Emer. Thanks very much, Vic. It's lovely to be here. A little bit daunting to be on the stage of the Abbey, but that's how it goes. My husband is an actor, so uh, he should really be here, but anyway. so <laughs> um, This is a picture of myself when I was 24. Uh, I was the artistic director of the Bell Table Arts Centre in Limerick at the time. And you can tell by the hairstyle, right? It was a big homage to Paula Yates. Uh, and that was actually my second job. My first job was as the administrator of Cork Theatre Company, uh, who at the time had a, had a lovely little theatre called the Ivernia Theatre, which was just off the Grand Parade in Cork. And that's really when I fell in love with theatre. Uh, and back then in the arts, we were on the fringes very much economically in the arts, but it, it felt like we were at the centre of the kind of social and moral debates that were raging in the country at the time. Um, I can remember, as if it was yesterday, observing uh, rehearsals for Michael Scott's play, The Lonely Heart, in the bell table in 1987. And watching uh, Tony Newfield and Conor Mullen rehearse on that stage was really amazing uh, and very powerful you know, to, to see that, particularly at a time in Ireland when homophobia was pretty rife and fear of AIDS was, was uh, you know, very prominent. And it felt right to me that a publicly subsidised venue like the bell table would be taking on work uh, you know, that were really at the heart of the difficult societal questions of the day. And to my younger self, that seemed like a really sweet spot. Uh, the, you know, so the, the kind of, you know, supporting makers who were concerned, not about making money, although that would have been nice too, but about harnessing the power of performance uh, to effect change through, through storytelling. So I worked in the arts in Ireland through the 80s and into the late 90s, Experiencing over, that time, experiencing over that time the shift into the professionalization of the arts. Uh, and that was largely kick-started by the Arts Council Conference, The Art of Managing the Arts, uh, in 1991. And at the time of the conference, I was working as the region's and arts centre um, officer of the Arts Council. But I remember that conference, not for the conference itself, 
Uh, but because it was there, I learned that the then director of the Arts Council had been involved in shredding a book which was called Dreams and Responsibilities. It was written by Dr. Brian Kennedy. And it was the first published history of the Arts Council and the difficult relationships it often had with government. And the reason he had shredded the book was because the Taoiseach's advisor, uh, Tony Cronin, Anthony Cronin, at the time, uh, disputed the assertion in the book by Dr. Kennedy that credit for the establishment of Estona should have gone to Colin O'Brien and not to Tony Cronin. And when I discovered that that's what my boss had effectively done, he had destroyed a book, uh, uh, shredded it, I resigned my job in the Arts Council in protest. And although I stayed working in the arts for a number of years after that, I worked with my collaborator, Yobstgrave, in uh, street art, Temple Bar, some of the sort of innocence and passion, I guess, that I'd had about the arts, you know, had, had gone. Um, and I retell this story here because to me, stories are important. They're the means we reconnect with who we are and with each other. They're more powerful than official records. They're more lyrical than recorded facts, and they matter. All of you in this theatre today, in some form or another, are concerned with the power of story and its role in holding society to account. Whether that's an act of protest at the director of an arts council who destroys a book because it speaks truth to power, or whether it's any of the rallying cries that have come from this stage since its inception uh, up to the present day. But stories must be nurtured and retold and must survive if they're going to be of value to us. If we do not continue to tell and share our stories in all of their creative forms, then we're absent from history. So the events and characters and places that I've referred to already here today all occurred prior to the explosion of the internet. So when you search for them, they can't be found. Fortunately, because Michael Scott had a photograph of Tony and Connor on his Facebook page, I could find that picture of the normal heart. But no trace of the beautiful little theatre, the Avernia Theatre I referred to, uh, uh, remains. It was actually down that little alleyway there. And the question is, does it matter that no trace of that remains? And, and I think it does. I think it matters hugely. Because in the age of the internet, if you cannot be found, you do not exist. So the problem with this invisibility came home to me when Fiat referred to my job as Director of Digital Projects for the Mayor of London. And when I was applying for that job and putting my CV together, you know, by that time I'd left the arts a long, long time. And when I searched the internet for anything relating to my work in the arts in Ireland, I couldn't find anything, nothing existed. So what good was it including it? No prospective employer would be able to prove or disprove any of it. So essentially, I was a ghost in the arts in 80s Ireland. So perhaps displaced from one community of passion, you know, ideology and commitment, we seek others. And for me, the exploding internet of the early 90s was such a place. And by the time I'd left the arts, it seemed to me debates, certainly in the 80s, had been reducing to who got funding, who got what, one company's loss was another's gain, one company's success, the diminishment of another. In the internet at that time, however, the opposite was happening. New channels of expression were opening up, new means of creative production were exploding. I don't know if anybody remembers old modems, I was on the first modems. <laughs> um, when I was growing up, even middle-class families couldn't afford this. Okay, so the means of film production, for example, were limited to the very few and the very privileged. But in the internet, it became possible to express your views, to have your voice heard, to connect globally, to hear new voices, to visit new contested spaces, to be inspired to learn. Over the years, when I've come back from London to Ireland and I discuss technology with old connections in the arts, I hear very little except grumbling about this, which is extraordinary to me. The internet then provided freedom from the oppression of the single channel, the tyranny of the expert, the sole reviewer. Here were multiple voices, multiple stories, amazing new perspectives. Through my journey into technology, I began to meet new storytellers. Uh, this is a picture of a 
friend of mine called Chris Thorpe, who's a brilliant technologist. He's the former CTO of Mind Candy. And if any of you are parents here, I'm sure you've heard of Mushy Monsters. Um, and that's the company, Chris was the person who was the CTO of that company. He says he spends half his life apologizing to parents. Uh, in any event, Chris and other colleagues of his that I met in London were technologists, but they were also civic activists who wanted to use their skills to change society, you know, to hold a mirror up to society, to hold the powerful to account. They seemed so familiar to me, and I realized why, because they were so like the artists and actors and writers and directors that I'd known when I worked in the arts. The technologist and writer Paul Graham in his book Hackers and Painters expresses this much more eloquently than I. <coughs> Oops, sorry. He says, along with composers, architects, and writers, what hackers and painters are trying to do is make good things. My collaboration with technologists in London was to force all public bodies in the city to release London's data, all of their public data, to force accountability and transparency in government, and to allow them make great things. So now when you visit London, because Transport for London have released all of their transport data, there are hundreds of apps for your phone that will tell you when the next bus is due, what's the status of the train network, right down to which carriage you should sit on the tube so you can exit the tube faster. And that's always a great thing in London because you just want to get out of the underground. Um, and these things are invaluable in a city like London where commuting is a huge part of everyday life. Hundreds of technologists connected to me on social media offering their technological advice on how we could release this data. And they did it for nothing because they wanted the whole government to account and they wanted to contribute to society. And that's, that's a good side of technology. But along with the good sides of technology, we're also experiencing, and certainly will in the future, more inequalities. So if we look in 2016, as the internet grows and grows, and power is shifting again, and vast commercial concerns exert their influence, the gains and spoils accrue to the technological elite. So let's think for a moment about Instagram. There are 13 employees in Instagram. Uh, it's a photo sharing site I'm sure you're all familiar with. So Facebook paid Instagram $1 million to acquire their site. Sorry, $1 billion to acquire their site. 13 people, you know, $1 billion on all our stuff. Right? So it's all our photographs, all our content, all our creativity. And I don't think I'm alone in saying I'm not receiving any shares back from that $1 billion. Um, and the profit is, so the profit is gained uh, by them. So. One point I would like to make is we're sleepwalking into a world where we're becoming content drones. You know, everything we produce on the internet is being commoditized and the wealth is going to the smartest, the very few at the top. And it seems to me, therefore, that the function of theater and storytelling must also be the calling to account of this new platform capitalism, you know, technology capitalism, where everything we share can be commoditized and sold, but not for our gain. Where in theater and the arts is the critique of these new forms of economic and technological power. It's not a badge of prize, you know, pride for people in the arts to claim they're above technology and the forces of the internet, that they stand apart from this huge societal game changer. Now more than ever, we need the voices of makers. We need your stories. Yet when I search on the internet, we're all ghosts of the arts in the 80s. This vacuum matters because in future, the stories that will be told will be those that will be found on the internet. History will be shaped by the machine. In order for the machine to find it, it must exist on the internet. You will all have heard about open data and big data and before your eyes glaze over, because people usually do. Um, what people really mean when they speak of data is content. So people don't realize that every keystroke in Google, every post on Facebook, every photo on Instagram is content. So if you haven't done so already, I would urge you as you know, practitioners and makers to sit down sometime when you have a couple of hours and search for yourself, you know, search for your history you know, your stories and see what, what is there. 
and to see what the machine understands of your contribution and your creative place, place in this country's theatrical and artistic history. And I'll guarantee you, you'll find very little. And yet, I bet in boxes, under beds, and in dog-eared folders, and filing cabinets, you have all of that content that you can start to see back into history. You have the missing data in headshots and production shots and reviews. So you can easily set up a blog, tag this as content, upload it so that the machine can find it and it's searchable. You can link this content by using social media, uh, by embracing what new technology can bring because if you're not searchable and findable in the web, uh, in the digital sphere, and the digital sphere is this generation's paper of record, not the Irish Times, unfortunately. Um, which is now, you know, behind a paywall. So you now have to pay to see a review of a production that you were in 10 years ago. Uh, yet you can release all of this data for free into the web, preserving our shared and important stories. This is data, and it's important data that tells the stories of Irish theatre practitioners in the years that the internet has forgotten. I'll finish with two examples. One is Theatricalia, um, which is actually a totally independent project which was started up uh, by a young technologist in the UK called Matthew Somerville. And he wanted to start collecting old playbills, you know, to, to have a kind of a record of, of the global theatre practice. Um, and it's a platform, you can, it's free, you can load up your stuff. So if you want a place to start, to start seeding back your history of your contribution, it's, it's a place you can do. Um, and finally, I just want to show you a short video that was recently curated as a labour of love by a technologist called Nerdfest in the UK. Uh, so last October, um, a video was made, a compilation of modern dance movies, which was set to the music Uptown Funk. And it went viral on the internet. And in response to this, and to highlight the need to preserve stories and to preserve old movies, and to raise money for film preservation charities, Nerdfest curated footage from old dance movies, including some for which only seconds um, of footage remain. So I'd like to share the results, and uh, then I'll, I'll finish with some closing remarks.
a joyous piece. Um, and, and the point I'm trying to make there is in the space of over two months, over 10 million people viewed that piece on the internet. And stories matter, and we know that history matters. And my call to you as theatre practitioners is not to look at artists and visual artists, not to look at technology or the internet as a thing of no importance or relevance to your craft. It's to embrace the internet for its power to tell your stories, all of them, so that we retain a complete history of the arts in Ireland. Beckett's Pozzo offered a bleak inter interpretation of our world. He said, we give, light a, uh, we give birth astride a grave, light gleams for an instant, and then it is night again. But the internet allows the light to gleam for more than an instant. It allows it to gleam forever. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ymir. <clears throat> so we've about 15 minutes. We'll have a conversation, and then we'll open up to the to the, to the floor. Uh, and before we then uh, hear Andrew Hagen's, uh, so some of it's quite frightening, uh, Ymir, and some of it's quite uh, quite alluring. So that tension between uh, documentation, uh, history, uh, and surveillance, 
All right, isn't that the, is, I mean, you're not saying that, but maybe you are. Could you just yeah. talk about that challenge, that, uh, the, yeah. the fact yeah. that we, we the, the fear of the internet, perhaps, the fear of, uh, of transparency, which is a, <laughs> a fear government has, uh, uh, and then, so it's, uh, and that tension between surveillance and transparency. Could you just? Yeah, is this the thing? This yeah, it's working, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been involved in, I mean, technology for a long time and, and open data uh, since 2009, and I'm a great advocate of, of transparency, and I think governments need to be held to account, and I think uh, when you publish data, it's really a Trojan horse for all sorts of questions, because the minute you start publishing you know, decisions that government have made, then it's more accountability, and they can be forced to answer questions that they sometimes don't like answering. Um, and largely, I think technology is a wonderful thing. Uh, but, uh, but also, my concerns really are looking into the future, too, around, you know, when you think that Google uh, have 900 million users of Gmail across the world, and if you look at the terms and conditions uh, for the use of that, for which we get free, okay, but remember, you know, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product, uh, and, and Google have the right to basically look at your emails, to read everything, to read every attachment, to look at the emails that you send to somebody, even if they're not a Gmail user. They're doing you know, machine learning to try and interpret emotions that are going on. They know your browser history, your search history. So for somebody like me who's been using email, Gmail for 16 years, there's a pretty complete picture of me sitting in a server in California, right? Now, um, the question is, if our governments knew that much about us, would we be, would we be concerned? Of course we would. Uh, and so there is very little accountability as to what co these companies will do ultimately. So we have signed away, if you look at the terms and conditions, in perpetuity our correspondence to Google. And so say they sell up and they decide they're going to sell it to every uh, uh, government in the world. So I think these are the concerns and I think people, people like their technology and they love their phones and there is a sort of a, you know, it's all very nice and shiny, but we don't tend to look under the bonnet. I mean, you would be amazed at the number of people who on their phones just say yes to any terms and conditions on an app which can, you know, turn on your phone, it can record without your knowledge, it can do all sorts of things. So people are inclined to think technology is about just efficiency and it's shiny and new, but there are lots of dangers coming. And the other example I would give you is something like Facebook. So, you know, we have 1.3 million pieces of data being uploaded to Facebook every hour of every day. And with that many people in the universe, you can imagine there is some pretty nasty content that has to be filtered out so that all your Facebook's accounts are, you know, nice and clean. And that work is not done by Facebook employees. It's done by outsourced uh, independent co contractors in the developing world for which they are paid a dollar an hour. Uh, and you can imagine that kind of content's deeply distressing. Um, and so, you know, Facebook was sold as the highest IPO on Wall Street. You know, it, it, it made so much money. Uh, but the, the gains are not, you know, going to, to, to people in the way that they should. So I think technology is a much more contested space, and data is a contested space. There's good, but there's also challenges. <clears throat> yeah, and we, we'll talk about taxes later. <laughs> um, uh, so your advice to the Irish government around open data, uh, is that a Trojan horse? Well, I mean, the government has made a clear commitment to, to having an open data strategy. Um, what I think will be fair to say here, as it was in London, generally politicians are more open to it. It's public officials who really don't like it, um, you know, because, you know, they, they are concerned and they're naturally risk averse. I've always found that amusing because, you know, politicians have to go for election every four years, so they you would think conceivably have more to lose. But generally there tends to be a resistance on a public official side. So, so the commitment is there. Um, and, you know, my call to the Open Data Governance Board 
board was to say, look, we have you know, uh, uh, lists of requests from people for specific data they want open. So let's just listen to people and let's just listen to people who want this data and start there. And we want to publish a, a timeline where we're saying we're, these are the data sets that will be released by this time. Um, you know, and it, and it does... It Can you give me an example without, uh, without breaking confidence of what, uh, as, a, as Irish citizens, what kind of data should we have access to? Well, hospital waiting times, you know, uh, you know, people, what people are interested in generally tends to be geospatial data or, you know, maps, for example, um, uh, but also, you know, resource allocation decisions that are made for, you know, various things like health and education, where the schools are, uh, you know, travel information is uh, relatively open in Ireland, but it's not fully open. Um, so generally you find people are interested in the things that they can make businesses out of. So if you look at London, when I asked the technology community in London, what data should we release. They went crime and transport. That's what they wanted. Now, we have an application in London called City Mapper, which is on over half of Londoners' iPhones. Okay, that's a lot of iPhones, right? And that's a business that uh, has just had a seed funding of £40 million pounds on an app. Okay, so from an economic stimulus point of view, you're looking at things that are real-time. You know, met, met Office data, for example, anything that people can develop digital products and services from. So, the call for open data is driven by the market, Emer, is it? It's, it's both things. So generally, you know, we used to have a movement called armchair auditors in the UK, you know, people who wanted all government data open. The reality is most people are not hugely data literate. You know, I could download a spreadsheet, but I really wouldn't be able to interpret it very well. What you're finding in the machine age is that's what machines do. They can, you know, they can interpret data in vast data sources and real-time data. So there's an accountability and transparency element, and then there's a market stimulus element. So they're both, you know, and equally valuable, I guess. One final question before uh, we'll have microphones on both sides. So, so the, I've been reading recently uh, uh, about Uber <laughs> and about the future of work. And, this is, uh, and uh, you, you just mentioned Instagram, 13 employees. Uh, the model of future, or the future of work, or the kind of potential kind of uh, extraordinary kind of uh, vista of how technology is going to impact on, on work, on all of us. Uh, is something that that uh, I'd like you to share with us in terms of what you might consider the the challenges and possibly the, what's going to happen there. Yeah, sure. Um, so at the moment I'm doing um, some, I'm an associate with Ernst & Young. I do some work with them and we're developing um, some work around what I'm calling techno-ethics. So basically the ethical underpinnings of technology companies. We know this from the 80s and 90s as corporate social responsibility, right? We, you know, we made certain decisions as consumers about companies when we looked at their value chains and, you know, they were involved in bad practices, for example, developing countries is an example. Um, but what's happening now and what has certainly happened since the last economic downturn is many companies let employees go and then they realize, well, we don't really need to take them back as full-time employees. You know, we'll take them back as independent contractors. And of course, if you're an independent contractor, you don't have any job stability and you don't have health benefits and all of the things that we understand as being the benefits of employment. So Uber, of course, say we are not a taxi company. We are in a technology platform. We broker supply and demand between you as consumer who want to get a taxi and, and the taxi drivers. And of course, that allows them, A, to set up their company at 40% less than they would have to do if they employed their drivers. Okay? And it also obviates the need for them to pay certain taxation. Okay? Now, there are, there are common good problems that happen. So for example, Uber want drivers everywhere. That has an implication for our, our cities and for congestion. Um, and recently in California, uh, there's been a class action suit taken against Uber. 
uh, basically saying you're misclassifying your workers and they are your workers and you must you know treat them as you would you know employees in other words give them the benefits that they're entitled to so there's that on the on the one side um, and I think that's going to be a problem for those technology companies and uber is now valued as the most valuable technology company in the world you know um, and I think places like Airbnb again if you look at which is badged very much as making a few bob on the side by renting out a room. And when you look at the data, you see that 70% of the revenue goes to corporate landlords. And these are people who are evicting tenants so that they can create these constant hiring out of rooms. Now, that's what we have city authorities for. Like I expect if I buy a house in an area and it's zoned residential, all of a sudden I'm having all this churn in my neighbors, right? And, and you know, that's subverting, it's disintermediating government. Um, and yet they won't pay their taxes, right? That's one side of it. The other side of it is, you know, we, we talk about the rise of the robots. And I mean, when you think robots, it's not necessarily something moving around, you know, that we think from science fiction. It's basically software. So now we're seeing in robotics, you know, pharmacies, for example, as, as a profession, uh, as a pharmacist, you know, a robot which can dispense 10,000 prescriptions a day, 24-7. E-discovery software and law, which can, which can do um, the same job for, you know, searching through documents. So one US law firm recently applied this software to cases retrospectively from the 80s and 90s and they found that their human lawyers only had a 60% accuracy rate. So there are going to be huge swathes of jobs which will suddenly become you know, freelance, independent um, and removed. Okay? And that's right across journalism, law, medicine, accountancy, tax, all of these things. And so my point is you know, if we are going to have to look at different models of benefits like perhaps a universal income for everybody because you know, there's going to be a hollowing out of the middle class. And equally, we need technology companies called to account to pay their taxation for the effect. You know, we can't stop technology, but we have to provide for its negative effects. And we have to look at the future of work, not in the way that we say the robots will come and take all the crap jobs that nobody wants. Yeah. They're going to take all our jobs, okay? So that, that's what I would say about that. Right. So I'll take two... <laughs> Not to be too depressing or anything. <laughs> no, but it's on the one or the other. It's, it's a, I'll take two questions before we, we go. So um, there's a lady here. There, the lady being Penny Arcade. Welcome back, Penny. Uh, and then we'll take one more question. There's a lady just by the cam up there, Aoife, uh, mi mi middle of the row. So two questions and then... Uh, no, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah we'll, get you, we'll get you the mic. Orl is coming with the mic. It's okay. And Aoife's up there. So take your time, Penny. Thank you for such an incredibly articulate and engaging uh, presentation of these ideas. I wanted to ask you, you were talking about you know, the issue of, of content and ownership um, that we're just handing over to Facebook, et cetera. Do you see really proper alternatives like that for like Sue? You know, I, I keep getting petitioned by people to move over to Sue, T-S-U, which is uh, a Facebook-like platform where you're supposed to own your own content. We'll wait for the second question, and then the lady in the middle there, and then we'll, um, we'll finish off with, 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 with Emer's answers then. Um, there might be a little bit of overlap with that question. Um, I'm interested to know uh, if you have anything to say about uh, preserving the integrity of um, story, whether it is the big question of Google wanting to digitize all books and you know, wipe out um, what might come back to authors, um, and at an individual level, preserving the integrity of our own individual stories, and that's raising the whole privacy issue. So 
I'd like to know what you have to say about those okay. two. Um, in terms of, um, uh, there's a very interesting technologist called Jaron Lanier, who has an interesting book I'd recommend called Who Owns the Future? And he's one of the few kind of uh, naysayers in Silicon Valley. He was the inventor of augmented reality. He's a brilliant technologist. And he talks about micro-licensing of content. You know, so each keystroke, each transaction we're providing is providing data for these people that they're selling and that there should be a mechanism codified in our content so that they can micro-license and pay us back. Okay? So it's no longer about, oh, great, we get the service for free. It's everything I'm doing to use your service is benefiting you and I want something back for that. Right? And there's mechanisms that you can codify that in the software. Although that has not been done as yet, but you may have heard talk of Bitcoin, which has an underlying technology called blockchain, uh, which is a, a possible way forward in the in the future. Um, and in terms of, so you know, the the other issue with that is you talk about moving to other platforms. The thing is, Facebook's where everybody is, and that's the that's the killer. So these where these companies win is they they create monopolies, and then you know it's like teenagers now say. You know, Facebook's kind of like an awkward family dinner you can't quite leave, right? You know, that's, that's the kind of, so, so that's the point. Um, in terms of preserving the kind of uh, integrity and, you know, I mean, look, the internet's open for everything. You know, you can put something up and people can amend it and change it. But one of the beauties of, for example, the little video I showed you is, you know, people can do wonderfully creative things. Um, uh, and I saw a really interesting example of Google Street View recently where, um, uh, a group of performers had gotten together and they knew the day the Google Street camera was coming. Uh, <laughs> and they went out and they populated the images with what they wanted to say about their community. You know, not this anonymized sort of antiseptic, clean look. And so they had a carnival parade which completely messed up Google's um, uh, street view. Uh, so, you know, it's about us controlling, you know, that's just speaking to the point about how do we control the integrity of, of what's taken from us. That's great. Now, you can follow Emer uh, on Twitter. Uh, she's an extraordinary Irish woman who has led the path, and we're very proud of her. And uh, thank you for making your debut on the Abbey Theatre. So, uh, <laughs> thank you.